Today is April 11th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Charles Lee Cox. We'll call you Lee. Is that right? Sounds great. Uh, he's professor of pharmacology uh, at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. His lab looks at functional organization and neuromodulation of thalamocortical circuits, neuronal excitability, synaptic physiology and plasticity, and in tax systems, as well as in pathological syndromes like fragile X, epilepsy, and AD. Um, hi, Lee. Hi. So around the room, we've got Joe Beatty. Hello. Hi, Joe. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. Hi. And Michael Ferris. Hello. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So I just want to start um, I, by uh, just saying when um, when David McCormick was here, we talked pretty extensively about um, the connectedness of things, about how you can't understand thalamus without understanding cortical layer six input in order to understand layer six, you have to understand layer four. And um, it seemed really hopeless for a solid 10 or 15 minutes of that podcast um, until someone, probably Charlie, said something like, knowing a small incremental circuit intimately and, and generalizing those principles can get you really far, can get you further than you think, actually. So um, it seems to me that your work does just that. So you're looking at a set of fixed connections between cortex, thalamus, and retina, and then their local interconnections. Um, we know approximately what the system needs to accomplish functionally, which is always visual system is great for that. Um, and you're determining the various ways that we get flexibility of information integration and transfer in that system, right? So um, can you give our listeners a sense of your work on uh, thalamocortical relay neurons in those terms. And for simplicity, you can stick to one, one particular story, like, for example, um, the story about spatially distinct function, uh, functional influences of MGLORs, or you know, yeah. anything you want to sort of hit on. Um, so please. OK, well, so I'll spin it differently than David did. So yes, it's complicated. Yes, it could seem hopeless that you'll ever solve anything. But I mean, you have to start somewhere, so you have to you know, you have to know what the parts of the the overall project are. So you got to know, you got to understand layer four. You got to understand layer six, both ways back to the thalamus and back up to the cortex. But you slowly build the puzzle from the pieces. So taking a reductionist approach, that's how we look at it. And yes, it will keep us all busy for a very, very long time. But I think we're going to. I mean, I think as a field. It's job security. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. It's job security, but it's also, you know, it's a lot of fun. And then the one issue is, you know, the more you start to study what you think is a simple circuit. So that's why we have focused primarily on the thalamus and the intrathalamic um, connectivity. You learn more and more about it. You learn how that it is more complicated, but you also start to learn some nuances. And that's where, you know, trying to understand, let's say, just dendritic integration in a given cell. Can we learn principles from that that we can then extend? Because that's going to be an issue at all levels. And so are there general principles or are there going to be unique things? Yes to both of those questions. But I think that's what, that's going to be the importance of, build, of bringing the physiology with especially computational approaches, which we are not experts in, but we interact with a lot with, uh, well, presently we interact a lot with, um, what are those guys? Engineers, bioengineers, trying to build pseudo-realistic computational models. And then you can come up with testable hypotheses on how these circuits work. So will that do perception? Probably not. That's probably a few more, many arrows away. But I mean, it's in the right direction. So I mean, that's kind of a reapproach that. 
So a number of different entry points for this complicated loop between the cortex yeah. and the thalamus. And uh, you work in David Prince's lab, and David uh, was entry point was sort of the output of the cerebral cortex, I guess. Right. And then um, you also have worked with Murray Sherman, whose entry point, I guess, was the retinogeniculate <laughs> pathway. Yeah. Would that be a correct way to say that? And so, what? What's? How do we pick? In a in a loop like that, where's where do we pick, how do we pick an entry point? Comfort zone, probably. So right, so right. In David's lab, and Prince's David Prince's lab, a lot was the interaction. So that spun off of the epilepsy field, right? Rhythmicity must have something to do with it. And how do you modulate the rhythmicity between these structures? Um, Murray was this. How do you parcel out the thalamus? Right. There's multiple information lines. And then I think we've really taken the approach of the retinal geniculate input more so. And that's probably because of the work um, that we talked about with the interneurons and trying to figure that out. Um, I think it's what you want to, I mean, because you could do, you could spin out of control by going anywhere and trying to do everything. And, and I don't think you can. So we use the simple approach as input output. And now we've kind of spun a little out of control in the, uh, in the intermix between the two. But I mean, that, ultimately, the thing we were interested in, and I'm still interested in, is looking at the, a known sensory pathway. So how so important? It's known input. Yeah, so exactly. So, so how important is it to know what your system needs to do? Because it seems to me that the, the sensory input is sort of, you understand how that needs, or at least the first, at the first synapse, you sort of understand what needs to be happening. Or what you know? What how yeah, your I think information you can, should be you can you can break it down and be more general. I mean, a lot of times, even that you know, you can make a, an analogous thing in the somatosensory pathway, as well as an analogous thing in the auditory pathway. Although there's some subtleties, right? Neurons fire a little higher in the auditory pathway. You know, that's pretty well known. So there's there's little differences, but I think overall, if there's, I mean, I think the intriguing and the what people get, especially the engineers that I talk to, about the thalamocortical pathway is they really get turned on by feedback inhibition and feedback circuitry and how that impinges back onto the upcoming information. And that's kind of where, where we kind of sit at the interface on the physiology side. Um, but it's still a long way from trying to figure out the actual processing of what, because I think there's, you know, there's a huge cortical component there. Uh, that's going to, you know, that's going to take time. But part of, the, part of the difference is whether you decide to look at the system as a whole. Like, if you think to understand some feedback-connected system, that you have to understand each node, and that's the way you're going to understand the whole, is understand each node and then understand how they interact. Well, that's pretty daunting. Yeah. Uh, but if you take a system and you have some ideas about how the system works, and then you manipulate or measure one aspect and see how that affects the system, um, or a part of the system, and then put it together. You're studying some part, of the whole thing. You don't have to understand everything. Right. Uh, to do, you have to understand one more thing than you understood before, uh, in yeah. one part, and you can kind of push anywhere and see how things move around and try to understand that, and then you make progress rather than. Would you call that the holistic approach? I guess so. I mean, you, you, it's hard. You have to, you have to pull out kind of, you, like, like we are talking about, you have to approach the whole from one angle. So it's not, once you do that, then it's not whole anymore. You're kind of pulling on one part of it. But you're looking at the whole, you're not, the, you're still looking at how that affects the yeah. whole system. Sometimes I hear people say that 
we could look for some global property, like some symmetry or something like that, and we never have to understand all these details at all, because all of the details are just built to create this very cool global property. You think there's, you think we can do that? I mean, no. Oh, too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cognitive, 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 I was just going to say. That's cognitive neuroscience. I was thinking more about like dynamic symmetry yeah. and the firing of neurons or something like that. I wasn't thinking about it as well, our experience or something like that. But just sort of, we, we normally are looking at, at uh, little local properties, mm -hmm. and then we're asking how do the local properties interact with each other to create more global things. And sometimes I hear people say that we could see global properties, understand what, how they function, and then at our leisure, figure out how the little local things create those global properties. And it just sounds good. I don't know how to do it, but I thought... Well, I think it, not, it, 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 depends on, it depends on the system. I think there's a lot of things that have been learned that way in some dynamic things. All the things about... Uh, uh, well, I was just talking, I was at a workshop talking to Marty Golubitsky about the different things about gate. We understand a lot about gate and the mechanisms of gate just by the symmetries of the system of you have right, exactly right, 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 left, and so on and so forth. He was talking about doing some of the things, some similar general things that you can say about rivalry, like binocular rivalry and how things switch perceptually between two things that are symmetric and competing for some perceptual thing. Now, I've, it's, I think that, that uh, there's probably a lot you can't say. Uh, in some ways, that system is, that problem is built to be symmetric. That's what you're studying, is how does the brain deal with two things that are equally balanced at once, and it has to decide between them. Um, and so that's a great problem for symmetry and symmetry breaking. I think one of, the, one of the advantages of those kind of problems is that they, based, I mean, in the case of gate, there isn't any question what it is you want to understand. Uh, similarly for some of these other things. Whereas in, if we start looking at the thalamocortical system, we don't immediately know what, which of the things exactly that we're looking at are the things that we want to explain and understand. What's the real, the, the crux of function in that thing? And so we have to kind of feel our way around in the system to kind of even figure out what are the functionally important parameters that we ought to be measuring. We know that individual action potentials mean stuff, that individual synaptic potentials mean stuff. And so we study those, but they are super small scale. Right, and then you're so reduced. But I mean, it's probably a marriage of the two, right? Because even though you have you know, this overall process, there might be multiple ways to get to it. So I think then it becomes maybe more of an issue when you start throwing dysfunction into the system. Right, you might have three avenues to get to the same endpoint, and then, in theory, you still need to know that reduced atmos reduced level to try to get there, well, or even, to bypass it. Yeah. Well, even if the the with the analogy with gate, you understand gate yeah. different gate mechanisms. You don't understand locomotion. What about all the perturbations and walking along real world uh, things where you have to adjust and and change all these things? You know the basic division of. Uh, into different components, mm -hmm. but you're not going to be able to deal with particulars. It doesn't tell you about the particular things that you have to adjust to, and things about vision. I mean, you have to you have to deal with a whole bunch of complicated uh, uh, stimuli and say sp specific things, not just 
in general. You mentioned yeah, uh, everything is dysfunction. still very simplified, right? Yeah. You mentioned dysfunction and epilepsy has been sort of seemed like an entry point for the thalamus to some people. Yeah. And what do you think about that? I mean, is that sometimes when when things aren't working right, it helps us to know what. It means for things to be working right and not working right and helps us to find the thing that we ought to be looking at. Do you think that's been a good avenue for a thalamic? I think it's been a good avenue for thalamic investigation. I mean, the, the key thing about that aspect is I think we know enough about the rhythms. We know about enough about the partners. The key things we still don't really have a good handle on is what starts it and what stops it. Right? Because it's almost like a sudden narcolepsy in a way. Although, you know, narcolepsy is more brainstem driven. But, you know, you have... So what is, can you just say a little bit about what it is and what it looks like when we're when you're looking in the thalamus? And oh yeah, so if you're looking in the thalamus, it's going to be the the connection between the thalamocortical cells that then impinge on the thalamic reticular nucleus neurons, which are going to be a feedback inhibition. So there's a reciprocal connectivity between these two that basically, and then well that basically will feed back upon it, uh, each other, and then under certain conditions you can have these things will basically burst at around, or they'll fire back and forth at around three hertz, and it'll just continue to chug between these two nuclei. And as a result, the what goes up to the neocortex is a very synchronized rhythmic activity, and that's what you see in absent seizure. And so the question is, we know the conditions to put those two so that they burst back and forth. You know, it probably has changes in certain or calcium conductances, and a little bit of synaptic connectivity. But what we don't understand is how that is truly predisposed or triggered in, let's say, the epileptic patient. And that's, that's still an open question. I mean, that was one of the things we were very interested in with neuropeptides, is we were thinking that neuropeptides could be released during these certain types of conditions where cells are bursting high-frequency discharges of action potentials. And is that a way of calming down the, the seizure activity? Um, there's a little clinical evidence suggesting that there might be peptide in uh, deficiencies, but it clearly doesn't answer the, the entire question. But that's that's been an avenue to understand the thalamus more, but there's still open-ended questions on that. So that makes us though, think of the thalamus as a somehow um, a nucleus in which rhythms are play a big role in information yeah. encoding. And when all the cells become synchronized like that, that basically the thalamus didn't say anything of interest to the cortex at all. Right. Well, like slow-wave sleep, right? So an absence seizure in the thalamus, absence-like activity in the thalamus, looks like slow-wave sleep. During slow-wave sleep, these things are chugging along, too, at this 3 hertz rhythm. And the person, so. it's called absence because the person is effectively not there. Right. They, they are no longer there. responding. Right. They're not getting sensory input. So it's very much like whatever that signal does... During sleep, it's very similar. The difference is to get to slow-wave sleep, you go through stages, whereas to go in an absence seizure, just like that, right? It just triggers, starts, might last a couple seconds, and boom, then it goes, it goes off. So it's like you know, and, and the person just comes right back. Yeah, it's a parent. It's a parent, or it's a period of unconsciousness, basically, is how we would look at it. And they realize that, you know, in hindsight, they realize that something just happened, but yeah, they tune in and out, in and out. A lot of little kids used to be called daydreaming. So one of the, th you know, one of the mysteries about the thalamus is what's it contribute like to sensory process, and what's its contribution to vision, and so on. You hear that 
question come up all the time. And isn't uh, isn't that the, f the first place in the visual pathway where this sort of rhythm generation becomes apparent? Is it? Is I'm trying to think. Are there any rhythm rhythmicity in the retina? There's sort of developmental yeah. waves and stuff right. in the retina. But I don't like think that stuff. there's in a in a working retina yeah. <laughs> that waves like that would be it would interfere with it. So actually, is Rhythmicity, I mean, is there an identified function for that when you're not asleep uh, or you're not having a seizure? I mean, that to me, that's one of the mysteries of the this reciprocal relationship between the TRN, the, the reticular thymine nucleus, and thalamocortical cells is that when we talk about them, usually it's in the context of either slowly sleep or, or seizures. Like, what is that arrangement for when you're awake and processing uh, input? Well, that's one of that's been a controversy through a, a number of groups in the thalamus, right? So there's like there's a camp that says whenever you see, see rhythmicity like that, it's either sleep, seizure, or some sort of pathophysiology. So Rudolf Loginas would talk about you know they see that kind of rhythmicity in a, in schizophrenia or in a Parkinson's disease. He's been pushing that for a while, and then there's the camp that Murray and Castro Amoncus and who else has been involved in that where they see bursting during wake. Although it's not rhythmic bursting, right? You'll see a burst. Um, so there's, and then, so then if you talk to some of these other camps, they'll say, well, you know, you see bursting, that's just an indicator that there must be something wrong in the awake state. And in the sleep state, everyone agrees that it just, that rhythmicity must basically close the gate you know, of what, what's going through. So if something interesting is happening, it's probably happening up in the neocortex, maybe some consolidation or something's going on up there. But there's tons of rhythmicity in the cortex, and there's yeah. tons of cortical thalamic uh, input, so it doesn't, all that rhythmic activity in the cortex doesn't affect the thalamus. Maybe. Well, you get that, yeah, you see that, what, like the 20 hertz kind of stuff and things like that coming through, and there's, you know, Stereot had some nice studies early on about like 0.1 hertz rhythmicities. What you know, what is that doing? Uh, I think that's, yeah, from my perspective, I think that's very still. It's very open ended as to you know what the functional significance. So, so for higher I, frequency stuff though in the cortex, it's probably it's, more coherent. Kind of stuff. Is it supposed to be thought of as generated in the cortex, or is some of that being generated in the thalamus? I think it's the idea is that it's generated in cortex. I don't think any of that's being generated in the thalamus. But the idea from cortical uh, physiologists that it's uh, generated in the cortex? or <laughs> I mean, who came I up think, with the yeah. idea? I, I believe so. <laughs> I'm just thinking of some older stuff out of Wolf Singer's lab and stuff back in visual cortex. I've had a lot of that. The idea was that it was generated up in the neocortex. I haven't thought about it in a while. <laughs> so I wanted to ask one thing. So we're talking about a lot of this, you know, this kind of framework of thinking about the thalamus as at least these rhythms and so forth, this real action between the reticular nucleus and, and the relay cells and stuff. And it seems like one of the, the really interesting things uh, that you've studied is that some, some parts of the thalamus have these innertrons and other parts don't, and some species do and some species don't. So then you have this new player, right? And that really gives you a different, a potential different way of rethinking the old kind of things or com at least comparing even in the same animal the same animal about what different parts of the thalamus do or don't uh, so yeah I mean do you have yes yeah, so it's intriguing so not many so there was actually stuff out of Dave at McCormick's lab that when Terry Ball was in the lab um, 
it's one of the few people I know that has actually looked at that. So you generate rhythmicity. What happens in the inner neurons? They don't seem to really do any. I mean, they're kind of like followers. They're not really a player in that aspect. I mean, so the thought really is is that it's the reciprocal connectivity between the thalamic reticular nucleus and the relay cells. Um, so that's where, you know, these inner neurons... We would re The inner neurons are purely feedforward. Is that not right? Well, that's what I'm thinking. The, the relay cells don't give off collaterals to the inner neurons, do they? Well, there's some argument that they might have some wispy little collaterals that could impinge on inner neurons and or the other excitatory cells, but it wouldn't be a major drive. Um, it could be, so it'd be, it's definitely feed forward from, let's say, the retinal geniculate from the primary sensory areas. Um, it's probably also feed forward from cortex, so cortical feedback, but it's a feed forward inhibition. Um, and so that's where you think it just might be more of a regulator of these, those kinds of excitatory inputs, of shaping it and maybe creating a, a the, or shaping the responsiveness, let's say. So one of the things people efforts. say is it speeds up the responsiveness. It makes the cell more uh, sensitive to the early stages of the excitation, locks the late stages so that the cell could follow higher frequency input. That's one of the things it's said, right? Yeah, that's been said. So, <laughs> uh, so, so then, and then you just said that the auditory system inputs go faster. Yeah. But the auditory input system doesn't have that in neuron, is that right? Well, that's in a rodent, right? So that's where the rodents become a really unique, right? Because if you look at ferrets, guinea pigs, and then start going up, cats, dogs, well, I can't say dogs, primates, they all have the oh, they neurons do. in that. In the this is where the, there's just something strange about the, the rodents. Okay, well, yeah. I'd be willing to, like, not think too much about rodents if they are an anomaly, the, especially they're control <laughs> tissue for us, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, are it, in a primate, is there any thalamic nucleus that doesn't have inner neurons? Seems like a, I mean, basically an opportunity for asking. Yeah, where are they? Yeah, yeah. Form. No, I don't. I don't know the answer. I mean, I I can't pull off the top of my head whether there there's a nuclei that don't have the inner neurons. I mean, I, I make the statement that they, it, they're everywhere, but I couldn't, I can't say that for sure. I mean, there might be the exception, but I think that's... So it could be that rodent's thalamus is handling lower frequency signals overall and doesn't need this sharpening, temporal sharpening. Do you think that's a possibility? I wouldn't deny the possibility, but I, you know, it's not really a, a data-driven Answer. One thing that's interesting to me about, like, at least the situation in rodents is that, like, it, you could argue that somehow rodents are degenerate and they're not using certain sen sen you know, sensory channels as much, but the the channel that that has the inner neurons, the one they seems seems less important yeah. to them. The visual to, system, why? Right. <laughs> Instead of somatosensory. Instead of somatosensory, like, especially yeah. with the vibrissal system yeah. or auditory, I mean, I think they, they hear pretty well. Yeah. So perhaps the inner neurons are the weakness. Right. <laughs> then they, they're, they're more advanced. They've cleared out the, this dross. <laughs> no, that, that's, yeah. It's Murray and I have had numerous conversations about the, the, the visual system of rodents. Why the hell the uh, inner neurons are still there? 
because the word is that rodents have terrible vision but great at everything else. I don't know. I never had that's the word. Although you know, there's there's work out there saying that you know there are these, you know, that the definitive data isn't really there yet. There's pieces of data that say like the subtypes of visual thalamic cells that you see, you know, like WX and Y or M and P type cells, they're in a rodent. You know, there's similar characteristics. You know, there's some phasic cells, there's some tonic cells. Um, they're not organized nicely. They're all scattered within the you know, lateral geniculate nucleus of the rodents. But there's there's a few people that are banging the drum, suggesting that they are. And there's some data that supports that. Can I ask about metabotropic glutamate receptors? Because I always think metabotropic glutamate receptors are a little bit mysterious. So you have studied metabotropic glutamate receptors in a sort of functional context, which is a little bit unusual because usually they're just studied in a in a bunch of cells where their function is is just explained at the cellular level without any kind of circuit explanation. So what you what you see are when the when stimuli are large, you may get a metabotropic glutamate signal that goes on for a really long time after the stimulus is over. Yeah, a couple hundred milliseconds. Yeah, and uh, um, so, but if the stimulus is small, you may not see that at all. Mm. Is that is that correct? That's true. And the metabotropic glutamate receptors are usually at the periphery of synapses or or extrasynaptic, usually not clustered right in the center right. of synapses. Is that also that's correct? the interpretation, right? That you have to have tetanic stimulation. So even a strong single, at least in this circuitry will not evoke something that looks, or at least something that you cannot detect. So if I'm thinking recordings. about vision, what kind of visual experience is it that I could expect to trigger a metabotropic glutamate receptor response? Well, that's where if you, so like if you look at, let's say, so we're thinking that these metabotropic-driven episodes occur more in tonically active cells. So the retinal ganglion cell that then feeds onto the thalamocortical relay cell is going to be one that drives a tonic activation of this cell. And so that's where we think that it could basically deviate the duration of the response, but it can also change, if with its long-lasting envelope, it can basically change the dynamics of, let's say, the contrast sensitivity of a given neuron that it, if, it's in, if it's engaged. So it's in those kind of cells. You have to have multiple exponentials in order to activate that. And that's where at least you know, the way we're interpreting it and you correlate it with the anatomy, it applies to cells that have a lot of tonic activity. And so it could just be a highlight situation. I walk outside. Could be a gain control. And, uh, and, I, and not the, so much that the stimulus is large, but that it doesn't go away. And the sun is still there. Yeah, it doesn't it's have to be that long lasting, right? It's, you know, we can actually evoke it with just a handful of action potentials. I mean, the examples that I showed in the and the talk required like trains of 10 action potentials. But we've titrated it down, you know, it takes probably about three or four. And, um, and that's pretty, and it, it's a similar thing if you look at the cortical feedback into the thalamus, that not, let's say not on those inhibitory cells, but if you look at that, again, to engage metabotropic receptors, it's a very similar thing. It takes trains, you know, it's more of an activity dependent process. So does this mean that, I mean, so the, the short version of like what the LGN does to retinal ganglion cell, 
uh, input is like nothing, right? It just passes it along. So does this mean there is some gain control that you can identify in the LGN that um, is added? Is it like a new stage of processing that the retina doesn't already do? Well, the only thing coming out of retina are these going to be these frequency trains, right? And so, so we would argue, yes, that there is some level of processing that's going to occur there. And that's where, you know, we have this, for this particular example, we have this tool. We could actually block a very specific type of metabotropic glutamate receptor and see, does it change? What does it change? And let's say, does it change receptive field? Prediction is probably, does it, does it change contrast sensitivity of a given neuron? I mean, I think there's... So it's not a simple experiment because you basically have to be doing, you know, some visual neuroscience. But, you know, I think there's a very pinpointed question we could ask to try to get at this. And according to feedback, it, it, we got to find it, someone to do it for us or do it with us. Or we can do it on ourselves. <laughs> okay. We can just take that metabotropic glutamate receptor blocker and then look around. I said that could be affecting your retina. You'll have to drill into your uh, thalamus, I think. <laughs> oh. But I could help you with that. <laughs> Make it a team project. I, well, well, yeah, I think you'd be a lot of volunteers that would help. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, one of the great things about visual stuff is that everybody sees, and if something was changing your vision, you might notice it. I mean, some things have been tried that way in the past. Yeah. Traditional so, pharmacology. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the cortical feedback to the thalamus largely affects metabotropic glutamate receptors. Is it? Is it primarily acting on metabotropic glutamate receptors, or is that is that just a long-lasting thing, and there's also yeah. a really uh, fast Right, so you're thinking, you know, when people talk about these drivers and modulators, and... Yeah, so how, di them. how big of a difference is there between a driver and a modulator? I mean, there's obviously some difference, so you wouldn't name them different things, but are they completely, totally different from each other, or are they just a little bit different from each other? I don't know, you want to jump in here, Joe? No, I'll, I'll <laughs> let you answer that one. Well, I mean, I think, so people have distinguished them on the presence or lack of presence of metabotropic. But there's still a very strong ionotropic glutamate drive or signal, we'll put it that way. So, I mean, you, so you can engage, you still engage an ISAMP and a DA current. Um, people might argue quantitatively that whether they're different or maybe let's say they, you know, how well they follow frequency stimulation. Um, but then... In addition to that, this cortical feedback will also engage metabotropic glutamate receptors. So it's kind of getting both. So what keeps the cortical signal from swamping the retinal signal? It's, there's so many corticothalamic axons. Why don't they drown out the signal from the retina? Well, it's probably twofold. So onefold is, I think, if you just look at the magnitude of responses, the retinal geniculate synapse is a much stronger synapse. Right, so there's a lot more release sites. It's a much, much higher impact on the cell. Whereas I think the cortical thalamic is much more of a graded response and smaller in magnitude response. So even though they they each one of them is so much smaller that yeah, I mean it's a smaller signal. It's a much more graded signal. You can really tune it down. Whereas the retinal geniculus is much more of a step-like signal. So there's, it's a relatively large amplitude, relatively speaking, if that could work. So, I mean, you will have some summation between these two. Um, you know, not knowing too much about a lot of the in vivo work, you know, the, the drive back, I don't think the uh, cortical thalamic cells are really firing at high rates and stuff. So it's probably creating a, 
some sort of baseline level, but I don't think it's going to be to the magnitude that would really just basically obliterate the signal coming through. I mean, that's what you're saying. If one's really high, it could just basically, yeah. you don't see any dead. Actually, what I was thinking, I was something I probably shouldn't admit to be thinking, but I was thinking that when we see things in our dreams, are we only seeing them in the cortex or are we seeing them in the thalamus too? Is that a, is yeah. that a scientific uh -huh. question? Am I allowed to ask a question like that? <laughs> you're allowed to ask whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. You're not going to give me an answer. I actually had another question. We could so, try the experiment. <laughs> so, Lee, if, if the cortical input uh, or the cortical feedback back to the thalamus isn't, doesn't fire at a high enough frequency, I mean, what's the purpose of the metabotropic glutamate receptors? Uh, they need the high frequency uh, input to activate them. I assume it's the same, right? It's the... Uh, with with the cortical feedback, but didn't weren't you just saying that the cor cortex feedback isn't at a high enough rate? Well, I'd say you know the resting level may not be enough, strong enough to engage it, but you could you could think of a scenarios where you know you think about if you follow the columnar organization that there would be certain periods of time where you'd actually get you know maybe not burst but higher clumps of action potentials, higher discharge that could. You know, inevitably, inevitably engage some metabotropic glutamate receptors, and then it's a question of what do they do, right? So there's, you know, there's arguments. Are there's data that suggests, you know, that's going back to the nuts and bolts. That one is it's a strong depolarization of thalamocortical cells. There's also evidence that metabotropic glutamate receptors can presynaptically attenuate excitation. There's some nice work that Tom Salt did over the years looking at. And then the stuff that we have shown, that we've suggested, is that via the interneurons, it's another way of dampening inhibition that might be pro-excitation. So another thing is, how do you separate those out? And I don't think we, no one really has a good idea on that. Um, so this might be, you know, expose my ignorance of metabotropic receptors, but do we know how much the, the kind of the nonlinearity of the needing for persons at the receptor level? Is that, is that interior or downstream in terms of the, the needing for a lot of activation to get a physiological effect? Do we, do we know? I mean, I think it's because they're, they're not centrally located on those synapses that you're actually looking for a little spillover. I mean, I, and, and I could be wrong on this, but the, the other, one other explanation was, you know, do they have a lower affinity? But I think if you just look at the protein, if you look at the binding characteristics of the proteins, I think that's still relatively high. So I don't think that's a good explanation. You know, that you had to get more of a concentration, but you really can't get too much of a concentration sitting there. But how about the, the effects inside the cell? Right. Is it, is it, does it require you need a, lot, a lot of, a lot of receptors to engage the, the effects inside the cell thing? Yeah, I don't. I don't have a good answer on that. I mean, I think the, the the dogma, right, is that the nice thing about these metabotropic types of things is they can actually act like amplifiers. You don't need as much drive at the receptor level, and then they amplifies whatever happens in the cell. But but they need a little time to accumulate. But it takes right. It takes time message. to get it going. But whether that well, requires repeated stimuli or not is that. That's it. It's a good. Yeah, I don't know. I, <laughs> 
So I guess I'm exposing your ignorance of that. Everybody's ignorance. Right. That's, 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 that's <laughs> <laughs> important if you had all the answers, and why the hell are we doing this stuff? And you've got both types of group one and gluars. You've got one and five kind of differentially distributed, right? Is that Does that have a spatial distribution that you know about? And is there a difference in kinetics in, in, with the one and five? I don't know what the differences are. Yeah, I don't know anything about the kinetics. I mean, they've both been tied to decreases in the potassium conductance mm -hmm. in, in, in these cells. Um, it, it depends on how you want to interp interpret the distribution. So there's arguments from some of the early anatomical that the type 1 is more distally located on the dendrites of these relay cells rather than proximally. Um, and then Reef tried the experiment where you try to apply this Focally along the dendrites and really see nice responses all along the dendrites whether that means that You know the effector machinery downstream of the receptors is different or not. We don't know I mean so you could still have this distribution of receptors, but perhaps when they engage the system Are the ones more proximal more efficacious than the ones more distal? Um, with the five it's the same kind of thing. I mean it's been shown it's more dendritic I think and that has a lot to do with the way the antibodies are um, if you read those original papers, it, it does look like there's distribution, but that's where you want the anatomy and the physiology, I think, to go hand in hand. That one, one doesn't really stand by itself. Everybody's very excited about anatomy today because of yesterday's paper on clarity and the, all the cool anatomical techniques. You think that the uh, all the breakthroughs in anatomical techniques are going to have big benefits for thalamic folks because in the thalamus, the, there've been there's been great anatomists doing great anatomy in the thalamus over many decades, and an awful lot is known. Is there still a lot of uh, opportunity for for anatomical discoveries? Yeah, I mean, I think yes, because a lot of the great anatomy that's been done over the years has been quite focused. So with some of this new stuff, we might get a better, especially the spatial distribution of things. I mean, in the old days, right, everything was serial sectioned. And so things were built, our whole hypotheses, our interpretations were built on a handful of cells. And I think the more we've studied physiology of cells, we know that there's a lot more heterogeneity. So I think we might have a better understanding. We'll be able to look at more cells. Because I mean, if you Think about some of the dogma that's in the literature, let's say in the thalamus, about, let's say, spatial distribution of things along a dendrite. It's basically built on a handful of dendrites. Is that truly representative? I might be a little cautious on that. So, so I think. Thalamic research really benefited from electron microscopy. Yeah. Electron microscopy is singularly uh, sparsely sampled, it's like nothing. You couldn't possibly be more sparse, except you know modern some of the new electron right. microscopy that's still is being done, or uh, the or the long period of serial reconstruction. It was but it was serial time. reconstruction of fifty microns of a structure. Yes, that's right. Yeah, which meant which was a huge job. It was huge, a huge job. job to do that. <laughs> so so maybe some of the electron microscopy, new electron microscopy that can do larger chunks of tissue. Would also right, you might get a better under or it might give you insight into processing of what's going on. Might. Or at least predict some new experiments to try.
It seems to me that one of the things, I don't know, I'm just like uh, free associating a little bit, so stop me if you don't want me to, but uh, one of the things that, uh, that comes up when we start talking about extrasynaptic receptors and metabotropic receptors and that sort of thing is the diffusion routes in the, in the neuropil. Because the neuropil is mostly not extracellular space, it's mostly little tiny crevices and cracks and things diffuse, don't diffuse like a, a gas in a liter box. Uh, and they have to just diffuse through these little narrow sheet-like processes and they don't have very many places they can go. And we don't even know the shape of that. For the most part, we don't know the shape of that because electron microscopy, which could show it, everybody was focused on the intracellular yeah. compartment and membranes and not on the extracellular compartment. I wonder if there's a, just only certain places where the glutamate can go and only certain things that it can reach, even if it well, and then escapes. Right, the but then it brings into you know our neurocentric way of thinking. You know, you start thinking more about the glia. You know, and we know about all the transporters and such things, such as that. So that's what I think. That's an exciting area. You know, all these buffering systems. Yeah, you because know, that's going to have a strong control over. You don't have a place to diffuse, but if you can diffuse, how where can you go? And how and far how can you, you get go before that? something grabs? Right, mm -hmm. and then you know, I think the more that people have started studying, you know, lots of different activity dependent changes in glia is. Yeah, incredibly exciting. But then we could go down the wrong channel. Oh, man, it's so complicated. But, but there's great things happening. <laughs> but it's cool. <laughs> there's yes. the, the techniques for answering these ancient yeah. questions are, are on the horizon at this point. Seems to me. We'd like to think so. That's yeah. what keeps us all going. Let's end on a good positive note there. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks for being with us, Lee. Oh, this has you. been Neuroscientist Talk Shop with Lee Cox. Thanks. Mm -hmm.